Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend, and I also hope that all of you have had a good start to your week. Hard to believe that uh, starting tomorrow is the official uh, first day of the uh, March Madness, a.k.a. NCAA tournament. But then again, March Madness has technically already started when you think about all the conference tournaments and uh, championship games to see who gets to go to the big dance. Uh, the school that I pull for, uh, even though I didn't attend the University of Virginia, uh, I can say that the University of Virginia has always been a second school. Uh, both of my parents went there. And uh, whenever I walk the um, grounds, I always feel like I am part of a student. Uh, I feel as though I am part of the university, I should say, a.k.a. I can always say that I'm kind of like a student of sorts. But I've uh, grown up with the University of Virginia all my life, and it is hard to believe uh, four years ago um, the UVA men's basketball team did something uh, beyond um, – it was improbable, if that's the best way to describe it. Uh, five years ago this month, uh, being a one seed, um, we didn't make history on the right um, right end, I should say. Uh, we lost to a 16 seed, and that had never happened before in the history of the NCAA tournament. And what do you know, a year later, uh, we were a number one seed, and we um, did the improbable. We won the whole thing. To think that a year before, a one seed lost to a 16 seed, and that same number one seed a year later, getting a number one seed, came back and won the whole thing. That, to me, is improbable, but it also goes to show you that anything can happen. Uh, so there are plenty of uh, Davids that have slewed Goliaths, even in March Madness. And how ironic, 200-some years ago, back in the 18th century, Britain's subjects were actually considered to be Davids of sorts. Britain, being the mightiest empire in the world, was Goliath. And what do you know? Even before the first shots were fired around the world, it is fair to say that David was taking matters into his own hands and trying to uh, go about doing what was necessary to modify an existing conflict between uh, the colonists and the mother country, only to come to the resolution or realization that, hey, after trying every, every um, alternative approach to warfare that did not work, then we were kind of left with no other choice but to um, to take those matters into our own hands, where a document, a.k.a. the Declaration of Independence, finally came about, which ultimately severed ties with the mother country. So no matter where we go in life, uh, there are Davids out there, and yes, there are Goliaths, but it is fair to say that it doesn't have to be in sports. Even in in the history of mankind, when it comes to um, subjects fighting against a mighty, a mighty empire or a mighty ruler, Davids can prevail. Well, we do have a lot of ground to cover in this uh, next uh, segment episode to the Boston Massacre of Family History by Serena Zabin. And we're going to uh, learn about the town of Halifax, Nova Scotia. We're also going to learn what kind of... Um, opportunities there might have been for those um, 
that is those who may have been of higher rank than versus those below if they had the opportunity to um, navigate outside of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, we will also learn if Parliament goes about implementing another round of legislation that, um, that the colonists will see as another direct violation of improper consent. We will also learn in this uh, segment episode how the first group of um, soldiers, when they will officially arrive into Boston, and we will also learn as to what kind of accommodations are made for them. So we have a lot of ground to cover, and I feel it's time to get going here now because I will tell you right now, we're going to be doing a, a six-pager. In other words, I've got six pages worth of information to share with you all. So we better get this show on the road before it's too late. So let's get going. Here's our first leadoff question. What kind of setting, or I should say appearance, could best describe Halifax, Nova Scotia based upon when the 29th and 14th regiments arrived between the years of 1765 and 1766? So remember, the um, 29th Regiment of Foot arrived in 1765, that is in July, and the uh, 14th Regiment came in 1766. So what do you all think is the best uh, setting or appearance that could best describe Halifax, Nova Scotia, based upon when these uh, two regiments arrived between the years of 1765 and 1766? Well, I could tell you this. Halifax was a small settlement, or I should say village, town. Halifax overlooks a large harbor, but the harbor itself was surrounded by land nearby where one fortress happened to stand above a tall hill, whereas another fortress stood below the hill. Interesting, you got a, a fortress at the bottom and then a fortress at a top. I wonder if that was designed for... Um, for means of uh, protection, maybe not so much means of protection, but in a sense a better means of uh, seeing what was coming in and out of the harbor in terms of ships. In other words, if there are ships coming in that we know have uh, have the right to be in our jurisdiction, then then that's one thing. But if but if we see something that we're not supposed to be seeing, and one of the fortresses can't make can't make out what the uh, problem is, but another one can, then it may not be a bad idea to have backup there. So, other than the two forts, Halifax consisted of small warehouse buildings around the water and docks. In other words, it's a small uh, place. Halifax is no, um, how do I say it? it? It's not anywhere close to Boston, Massachusetts in terms of um, hustle and bustle. Halifax, uh, it, it might as well be what we might think of as like a little wide spot in the road in uh, Nova Scotia. But the town of Halifax, without factoring in the soldiers and their families from the uh, 29th and 14th regiments, it just so happens that the town of Halifax consisted of 3,000 people. Well, you know, in, in the years of 1765, 1766, and before then, 3,000 people uh, for a town like Halifax, that would be considered a lot of people. The majority of the uh, population, that is, the majority of the 3,000 um, people population in Halifax, is comprised of single white males. 
And there is a portion of the population in Halifax, Nova Scotia folks that included 35 adult and 19 African-American children, which consisted of a, a mixture of enslaved and free peoples. Roughly half of the 3,000 people population, being right around 1,500, were born in North America and most likely were uh, children whose numbers comprised over one-third of the entire population. And they do know, uh, based upon uh, Serena Z Zabin's uh, research, about 1,200, which was the total number of uh, children uh, living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, between this time of 1765, 1766, 1,200, uh, which would be about 40% of the uh, Halifax uh, population, which is, you know, to me, that's a very uh, unique number. Now, something else that really stood out about Halifax's um, population, maybe not just so much their population, but in terms of um, religious um, faith, it just so happens that um, all Irish peoples in Halifax, Nova Scotia, were of uh, Protestant faith. It just so happens, folks, that Irish Catholics were not allowed to enlist in the king's army, which also included getting no government support for immigrating to Canada. So even if you are uh, practicing uh, the Irish uh, Catholic faith and you go to Canada, you're going alone. In other words, expect no assistance from the government in supporting you. Uh, they might as well consider you to be someone uh, going over there in exile. You know, I know some of you would say, well, gee, isn't that kind of unfair to not let um, Catholics serve in the army? Well, we have to remember, folks, this isn't just an army. This is the king's army. And when you live in England at this time, and it still is uh, heavily Protestant today, there is a sector uh, in England that is of uh, Catholic faith, but it's probably a very small percentage or minority. But at the height of uh, England's mighty empire reign, England is associated with the Anglican Church, a.k.a. the Church of England, what we might think of as like the modern-day Episcopal Church. So if you are willing, if you are going to challenge the Church of England, expect a lot of dire consequences. And if you live in the Virginia colony, whom are you paying taxes to, even if you don't truly believe everything that the Anglican Church stands for? Your taxes still go to the Church of England. If you are a Baptist, of course, Baptists were the most vocal dissenters in Virginia. So if you decided that you wanted to um, give up your loyalties to the Church of England, you had to sign an agreement stating that you still agreed to pay taxes to the Church of England, even if you were a dissenter. So just remember, you know, we, we do need, need to be reminded that just because you are of a Protestant faith at this time, it does not mean that you get to worship freely. As a matter of fact, there was a law that Parliament passed back in 1661 known as the Test Act. That piece of legislation pretty much said that um, for those people wanting to work in the government, including serving their government, even if they um, were members of Parliament, 
they all had to take up uh, an oath or allegiance to the Church of England. And it stayed on the books, folks, until the year 1828. In other words, that law stayed on the book for 167 years and wasn't repealed until two years after Thomas Jefferson died. And I mentioned Thomas Jefferson because one of the three things he wanted to be remembered for, and you can find that on his uh, tombstone at Monticello, besides being the, the author of the Declaration of Independence and the founding father of the University of Virginia, the other uh, thing he wanted to be remembered for is being the founding father for the uh, statutes of uh, religious freedom in Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, um, his family was part um, strongly uh, believed in the uh, Church of England, but when Jefferson went off to college at William & Mary, his views on religion began to change. And over time, Jefferson was one of those individuals who believed that uh, religion was in fact, or one's faith was a private matter. So, yes, it might be unfortunate on one hand that Irish Catholics are not allowed to enlist in the king's army, but another reason for that was because what the Protestant Reformation brought about was um, basically saying that, hey, we don't like the fact that the Catholic Church is not only telling people what they can and can't um, adhere to, but we don't like the fact that the Catholic Church is controlling land, and not just land, but the natural resources that are that lie underneath uh, the surface of the land. So it is fair to say, folks, that even in, this, in the 18th century, and even in today's modern world, there are conflicts that people have from religious standpoints. It's nothing that is new. Um, it will probably be like that till the end of time. It doesn't make it right, but it's just something to be reminded of. Uh, was Halifax, Nova Scotia full of lively activity? No, it wasn't. Halifax was viewed by many, by many as boring, I should say desolate, um, depressing, uncomfortable. Britain's war office uh, viewed Halifax as a holding station for soldiers, more so, we could say, as like a modern-day halfway point where, okay, soldiers are going from uh, Halifax to America. In other words, they're in Halifax, but they could be going uh, 400 miles south via by boat to Boston, or they could be um, awaiting orders to return uh, back to England from Halifax, Nova Scotia. So, you know, it's one of those, you know, Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's surrounded by water to the west and to the east, being with the Atlantic Ocean, but it's one of those um, venues that, you know, it's really a halfway point. You either are going somewhere in America or you are returning back to uh, Europe. You know, one thing that uh, younger British officers did, and they had to create their own entertainment, given that there really wasn't a whole lot of entertainment in Halifax, but younger British officers engaged in acts of entertainment not viewed as popular by the locals, such as using goats for shooting practices, live goats, folks, <laughs> to drinking heavily, or I should say becoming rowdy in public. However, they did go fishing, which to me was a more productive choice. After all, you do need to have food to sustain yourself, and you need to have food for survival purposes. Were many British officers tempted to leave Halifax, Nova Scotia? Yes, indeed. Most officers whom left Halifax 
did in fact sail 400 miles or went by boat for the four, full 400 miles south to Boston, Massachusetts, whereas other officers ventured into prosperous Canadian cities, most notably Montreal and Quebec, where the social scenes offered greater entertainment, or I should say prospects. Well, if you are a high-ranking officer or within, say, the inner circle, it is very fair to say that you have uh, greater opportunities to venture out as long as you have some good connections. However, there were officers who were unable to leave Nova Scotia. Was it because they just didn't have connections to get to other places? I wouldn't say so much con it was a lack of connections, but a lot of it had to do with uh, physical hardships. Well, when we think of physical hardships, that could mean like, you know, illnesses. It could mean um, uh, a medical ailment. But in the case of uh, physical hardship, in this case, it had to do with an illness uh, known as um, scurvy. Or maybe not so much an illness, but rather a disease known as scurvy. I'm sure most of you have heard of scurvy. I learned about it uh, some time back when having learned about um, explorers who sailed around the world. Or not so much sailing around the world, but sailed to um, from point A to point B in search of routes, different routes around the world. But uh, scurvy is a disease that is brought on by vitamin C deficiency. So in other words, is it fair to say that if one did not have proper um, access to fruits and vegetables that are rich in vitamin C, that they could experience um, a whole host of other um, issues to where their lifespan might be cut short? Very possible. And... In the winter months, what are you going to be eating more of? Meats. Like, say, you know, if you can get yourself access to roast beef, that's pretty good because roast beef is a top, um, top quality meat that very few people can get their um, hands on. But you're going to be eating lots of meat in the winter. And that also would mean in the winter time that you're probably not going to have well, it might depend on your rank in society. If you're of the landed gentry, then yes, you're going to probably have much better access to uh, such dark uh, vegetables, say like red beets, um, kale, uh, cabbage, anything of a dark green sustenance or substance, I should say. But for those um, who, say, would not be a part of the landed gentry or perhaps of officer rank status, those... Uh, Soldiers not having access to foods, most notably fruits and vegetables containing the vitamin C, um, would put them in a real, uh, what do you call it, it would put them in a very challenging spot. However, if there was accessibility in the form of getting access to uh, vinegar and wine, if soldiers had access to vinegar and wine, then the chances of their being able to modify their existing situations to where the chances of getting scurvy would be reduced, then yes, uh, the access to vinegar and wine would definitely modify um, 
the existing uh, vitamin C deficiencies. So any means of getting anything that could help uh, reduce uh, vitamin C deficiencies uh, went a long way. Basically, scurvy was a big killer for sailors out on the waters in terms of not getting that uh, access to vitamin C. You know, interesting to note uh, what um, newspapers, you know, newspapers in uh, colonial days reported on unique um, pieces of information. It wasn't all sad news. And yes, there were times when it probably wasn't all good news, but the newspapers certainly did provide um, an abundance of what they deemed uh, to be relevant information for um for subscribers of the day to uh, be listening to be reading about. So the newspapers in North America during January of 1766, two months before Parliament officially repeals the uh, hated Stamp Act, the newspapers reported temperature so cold to where it didn't go above three degrees Fahrenheit. Can you imagine that, folks? Not the temperature not getting above three degrees Fahrenheit. And who's to say that the wind chill, in fact, during the wind chill, it could probably be somewhere below zero. Privates, that is the lower-ranking uh, uh, soldiers in the 29th Regiment, lacked fewer means for travel, unlike their commanding officers. Some privates were fortunate enough to marry local women from Halifax, like Private William Clinton marrying Ann Dixon. A majority of the 29th Regiment's children were born to women from Ireland. So, if you are a private soldier, or part of a large uh, contingency of private soldiers at Halifax, Nova Scotia, what kind of, is there any kind of work that you could do to uh, reduce the uh, loneliness, to reduce the, um, what do you call it, the, the depression of, of being there? Because there's not a lot of entertainment going on but is there something is there some kind of work one could do to perhaps what we would think of in today's time is like supplementing your current um, income status well it just so happens that uh, private soldiers were capable of performing um, various work tasks uh, one instance occurred where extra money was earned from building roads to helping bring in the harvest a.k.a. food crops, as well as building structures like barracks, houses for soldiers. Okay, so there are some ways to uh, modify uh, the current state of um, loneliness, which is a good thing. However, General Thomas Gage, the lead commanding British officer of North America, opposed officers, including soldiers, performing work duties for Nova Scotia's broader population, that is, for the locals. Gee, isn't this a little um, self-centered on uh, General Gage's part to be um, having this kind of attitude? I think it is. It, But General Gage has a message for his officers below him as well as for the uh, soldiers, the common soldiers, a.k.a. the privates. The presence in Nova Scotia is not to be getting too close with the locals. Your presence in Nova Scotia is to serve king and country. In other words, regardless of whether you're going from Nova Scotia 
to say eventually Boston, Massachusetts, or going from Nova Scotia back to England or another part of the world, your duties, that is your primary duties, are to be serving king and country. No buts, no ifs, no exceptions. Okay, now we're going to move on to the year of 1767. And I have a good feeling that Parliament has got some new tricks up their sleeve. Here we go. Would the year of 1767 see Parliament impose a new round of import taxes on her subjects, a.k.a. 13 colonies? Now, we think of import, folks, that's, um, you know, goods coming in. Import taxes, in this case, are the taxes that um, are incurred upon the goods that are brought into the colonies. Of course, export, you know, the goods that are going out from the colonies to England. So the answer is yes. Uh, the year of 1767 sees Parliament um, impose a new round of import taxes on her subjects. The, the new round of import taxes were placed on uh, noteworthy items from glass, lead, paint, paper, to tea. The purpose of the taxes meant seeking new revenues for the British government, which still faced ballooning deficits incurred from the Seven Years' War. You know, Parliament's tried a couple of times already, and they've struck out. However, the Sugar Act, though, there was... I wouldn't say they struck out entirely with the Sugar Act. Smuggling may not have been eliminated 100%, but it was reduced. I don't know if it made it to the 50% threshold, but the Sugar Act did help reduce some smuggling. So they did get some partial success, but they never got anywhere with the uh, Stamp Act. Now, the fall of 1767 saw greater word of the Townshend's, uh, of Townshend's measures become widely known in America. You know, the Townshend Acts. I don't know if I mentioned that from the previous podcast episode. I doubt I did. But in case some of you aren't familiar with the piece of legislation that Parliament passed in 1767, uh, it was known as the Townshend Acts, named after Charles Townshend, who was the exchequer of um, Parliament. In other words, he was a high uh, official in the uh, Treasury Department. But Townshend um, advocated uh, this new round of taxes as a means of um, doing whatever it took was necessary to get um, not only money back into uh, Parliament's uh, coffers, meaning their, um, their uh, what do you call it, uh, system for uh, generating revenue, but also to um, ensure that uh, the frontiers are protected from, uh, from us, in this case from the colonists, from going into uh, frontiers and um, engaging in raids on the Indians, given now that the British are protecting the Indians and have uh, reneged uh, the promises that were given to the colonists during the uh, Seven Years' War, largely in part because of the uh, Proclamation of 1763, which pretty much uh, stated that there would be no further um, expansion westward past uh, the Appalachian uh, Mountains. So, fall of 1767 saw greater word of Townshend's uh, measures become widely known in America. John Rowe, whom we uh, learned from a previous uh, podcast episode, 
being a Boston uh, merchant, uh, partook in uh, opposition. Actually, I take it back. We did not learn about John Rowe, and I do apologize for mentioning a second ago that his name had been mentioned um, before, and that is not uh, true, so I do apologize for mentioning that. So I'm going to talk about him now. So uh, let's learn about John Rowe here. He's not a prominent forefather like, you know, John Adams or his cousin Samuel Adams. But John Rowe is a Boston merchant, and anyone who is a Boston merchant of that time definitely has some um, status in the greater Boston society. John Rowe, uh, besides being a Boston merchant, uh, partook in opposition to the uh, Townshend Act, where uh, Boston town meeting officials went about appointing him and other merchants to a committee that sought instituting a boycott. And for some of you, well, I have no doubts that a lot of you know what a boycott is, but for some of you who aren't familiar with that term, a boycott basically is a ban on something that you are not in favor of. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a ban on on a particular good or various goods. It could be a ban on, um, on legislation or let alone a measure that was uh, enacted to where... Um, it doesn't uh, benefit, say, not just you, but it doesn't benefit um, a large group of people. Uh, one example I could give of a boycott, it happened before I was born, but it was one that um, that uh, was probably necessary that helped um, lead to a, a bigger spark in the civil rights movement. Uh, long story short, uh, Rosa Parks, uh, the late Rosa Parks, um, was riding on a bus in, in Alabama. This was in late 1955. And she had to give up her seat. Well, the law said that if a white person uh, came onto the bus, then um, the African-American person would have to give up his or her seat. Rosa Parks did not want to do it. Uh, she had basically had enough of the injustices. And while she did get arrested for it, she took a stand. She even went as far as saying, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And her actions led to a greater boycott of the uh, bus system in, um, in Montgomery, Alabama. And the boycott movement worked so well that it was just one of many um, instrumental measures that helped um, spark uh, what was necessary in getting uh, further civil rights um, movements um, spurred. So that's just that's one example of uh, many that can be used uh, for boycott. But um, back to what we are talking about here, that um, that uh, Boston merchant John Rowe would uh, soon join up with other uh, merchants to form a committee that sought instituting a boycott. And the boycott here was going to be a ban on soon-to-be taxed goods. That is, the taxed goods revolving around glass, lead, and tea, just to name a few. Over 600 people, along with 53 women, agreed to sign on to a, the boycott advocated by John Rowe as a means of not buying those uh, specific imported products. Charles Townshend, however, went as far as making Boston, Massachusetts headquarters for customs service. Customs service, folks, that means, you know, that's another way of saying um, that it'll be... Um, 
Boston, Massachusetts's headquarters is for the customs service, that is for the customs collectors, customs commissioners, who are going to oversee that, in fact, the taxes are being collected. So, officials will oversee that new taxes, known as the Board of Customs Commissioners, the process behind collection, or let alone collecting import taxes in 18th century, was one that um, was face-to-face. There's no such thing as the Internal Revenue Service at this time, but it might be fair to say that the um, tax collectors, or let alone the customs commissioners of the 18th century in Boston, are going to be the, the closest thing to modern-day IRS agents. So yes, the process behind collecting import taxes in the 18th century is one that is face-to-face. Starting out, customs officials were welcomed by locals only from a social standpoint. Hey, we don't mind talking to you, um, asking you how are things going. That's okay. But when it comes to um, doing their work, and that is collecting or trying to attempt to collect uh, taxes, Relations with the locals quickly turn sour. In other words, they're no, they're no longer peachy. They are shaky. Customs commissioners never had seen people behave in such an unruly manner like what they witnessed in Boston. Commissioners saw their properties, I should say their homes, nearly destroyed by the angry mobs, the unruly crowds. Governor Francis Bernard ordered commissioners and their families to leave the town of Boston by seeking shelter aboard British, aboard British Navy ships stationed in uh, Boston Harbor, and then um, onward they would go to Castle Island, which um, I'll discuss some more here uh, in a little bit. So, you know, it's one thing to be a customs collector back in England. Yes, you might... Encounter a few people whom are rowdy and a little unruly, but in a town of 16,000 people in Boston. Now, of course, we should be reminded that London, England has a bigger population than the town of Boston, Massachusetts. But for customs officials to be uh, doing their necessary work in a town of 16,000, that's very um, intimidating, let alone knowing just how many people are hostile towards you once you start uh, going about doing your work. During time spent aboard a British Navy ship, for safety reasons, customs commissioners wrote a desperate request to General Thomas Gage, asking for troop regiments be brought in as requests pertaining to safety, or I should say security. Here's where we start getting into some dilemmas, folks. What do the customs what do the custom commissioners not have? They don't have authority on their end to request military backup. Okay, well if uh, the customs commissioners do not have the authority on their end to request military backup, who technically does have authority? Well, it turns out folks that even General Thomas Gage who is the lead commanding officer of the British Army in North America, even General Gage has no authority to order troops into British settlements during peacetime. So in other words, even though there is some conflict in Boston right now, 
even General Gage cannot fully order troop regiments into Boston because there, there isn't a uh, true war at this moment. The summer of 1767 sees the Earl of Hillsborough come to an agreement with customs commissioners where he sent two regiments, the 64th and the 65th from Ireland to Boston. Of course, those two regiments will probably have to spend time first in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. But that's the closest compromise that can, that's being um, made right now at this time. Uh, when did the first British troops officially come into Boston? Now we're going to really take things uh, to a different level here, folks. Now we're going to learn about when the first British troops come to Boston. We're going to learn a lot of things that many of you all probably were never told before, but then again, the textbooks didn't tell us this stuff from years past when we um, you know, learned all the 101 fundamentals about what led up to the Revolutionary War. So when did the first British troops officially come into Boston? How about the year of October 1768? They came as a means of assisting Governor Francis Bernard with halting the current state of violence and unrest which had been unchecked since Parliament's passage of the Townshend Acts from the year before in 1767. Late September 1768, saw more than a dozen ships transport over 1,000 men, including hundreds of women and children, to Boston. The trip to Boston, that is, from Halifax, Nova Scotia, to Boston being 400 miles, it took more than a week. Matthew Chambers and his wife and their uh, child, and their and their children, I should say, uh, because I, I think their family had expanded to to where they had a second child in uh, Nova Scotia, but Matthew and his wife Jane and their children were aboard one of the uh, boats or ships, I should say. We we should keep in mind that not everybody would have been confined to one ship. It's you know think about it. You have a thousand men, including hundreds of women and children. There, there's no way that everybody can fit aboard one ship. So let's. Let's not even think of royal of ships that are the size of Royal Caribbean Cruise Line ships, folks. So, Matthew Chambers, what do you think he would have seen along the horizon going into Boston Harbor? How about scores of church structures? After all, Boston is a, is a, um, a, a religious haven for people of many faiths. So, Large structures, being those of church structures, ought to uh, represent the um, true uh, power and, uh, and authority behind um, the presence of uh, churches. Not just churches, but the presence of a broad, um, a broad uh, diversity of religious faiths. So yes, Matthew Chambers would have seen uh, scores of church structures stationed on a hilly terrain, all the ships, however, went about anchoring, or I should say dropping anchor in front of Castle William, which was a large square fort on Castle Island. Matthew Chambers and other soldiers in the 29th Regiment probably viewed Castle William with awe. And why would they not? I'll tell you why. Because Castle William, folks, was made out of stone. Yes, there were means of building uh, barracks in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but they did not have the same quality 
in terms of uh, resources to build those barracks, like what has been done at uh, Castle uh, William. The um, living quarters in Halifax, Nova Scotia, were pretty much comprised of wood. And in some instances, the wood was not of top quality to where it rotted easily. So seeing uh, Castle uh, William was something to me that would have been far more worth seeing than and perhaps wanting to live in versus a uh, wooden structure that um, had a very strong likelihood of rotting much sooner than versus later. Now, whom, whom exactly in Massachusetts had the power to distribute necessary space, including funds, for lodging troops? The answer is the Massachusetts Governor's Council. This council, folks, being that of the Governor's Council, I should say, was made up of ten men whom were elected by the Massachusetts Legislature. The Governor's Council did not have any objections to placing the 29th Regiment of Foot, being Matthew Chambers' regiment that he was part of, at Castle William. But they did not support proposals behind lodging any British troop regiment within the center of Boston. I could see... I could just see it right now that if uh, troops were placed in the center of Boston, I could just see all kinds of, um, not only protests, I could just see riots and fights breaking out left and right like there was no tomorrow. I could just see it right now. However, the governor's council thought long and hard about this uh, matter. They had discussed the issue with Boston's local government officials, which included both explanation and reason for not allowing troop lodging in town. The explanation part was from a legal standpoint. But as for reasons, they were emotional, given the governor's council and local government officials became upset by how Massachusetts Governor Francis Bernard, General Thomas Gage, and the Secretary of State all labeled Boston's people, well, not so much Boston's people, but we'll start out with this. They all labeled Boston as a town of unruly and ungovernable people. So in other words, Governor Francis Bernard, I mean, we already know he's had a rocky relationship with the people of Massachusetts since day one when he became royal governor. As a matter of fact, he came from New Jersey to Massachusetts. That's quite a transition from a middle colony to a northern, a.k.a. New England colony. So, for Governor Francis Bernard, yes, his relationship with the people of Massachusetts has never really been um, one of uh, peace. It's never really been one that has been uh, tranquil or smooth. General Thomas Gage, um, you know... He really wants to see this matter come to an end as quickly as possible. I don't think Thomas Gage, you know, he knows that he, even he himself is in a very um, complicated situation in terms of, of administering authority, having the right to administer the proper means of authority. And the Secretary of State, I mean, they all have this grand envision in their minds that 
Boston is a town of unruly and, uh, and ungovernable people. And it is probably fair to say that there is a sector of Boston society whom is not satisfied with anything. Even the Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, I remember uh, when we did the, uh, America, uh, the podcast series American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution by Harlow Giles Unger. Lieutenant uh, Governor Thomas Hutchinson um, made a comment, and it's in quotations, about how something about it had to do with it, it, how it doesn't take much to persuade people that they are being badly governed. That's it. Glad I remembered. And it really sometimes doesn't take much to uh, persuade someone or persuade a group of people that they are, in fact, being badly governed when the majority of a population would say um, opposite. So it is fair to say that they, that uh, for Governor Bernard and General Thomas Gage and Secretary of State, it is fair to say that they are on the same note with Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson and that it simply just doesn't take much to persuade um, to persuade individuals or to persuade a group of people that they are being badly governed. So by, by viewing the town of Boston as, um, as a group of people whom are unruly and ungovernable, they believe that the regiments, or let alone the presence of regiments in the town, ought to be seen as the most effective solution behind restoring order. Why not? If you if you're in the if you're um, in the if you if you are in the uh, British camp that is, the council and local uh, government officials went as far as writing Governor Bernard a formal letter requesting that the, that the 29th and 14th regiments be stationed or lodged at the buildings within Castle William. The findings were in reference, folks, to a piece of legislation Parliament passed in 1765, the same year that they uh, went about enacting the Stamp Act. This other piece of legislation was known as the uh, Quartering Act of 1765, which said that troops were first to be lodged in existing facilities. Well, even existing facilities is, uh, is vague if you don't interpret it properly. But once those existing facilities are entirely full, then other troops could get lodged in such places as inns, a.k.a. taverns. Inns and taverns, if it came down to that, where other troops had to be, be lodged in the event other f existing facilities were entirely full, the inns and the taverns were to be rented out at the Crown's expense, a.k.a. the Crown's budget. The British Army folks were not allowed to take money from the town of Boston for their own spending purposes in regards to housing, so they have to pay for this out of their own pockets. The 29th and 14th regiments remained on board the ships, given the dispute over lodging remained at a standstill. However, uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple of the 14th Regiment does something pretty gutsy. He decides to take matters into his own hands by placing all troops right in the center of Boston, despite opposition not only from the locals, but also from the governor's council, including uh, local government officials, and perhaps even Thomas Gage in a way. But you know what? If Lieutenant Colonel Dalrymple takes matters into his own hands... I guess even General Thomas Gage would be fine with it. 
At this point, the British are desperate. They're tired of having to see their soldiers out on a dozen ships or more waiting just to um, get off the ships and get on the mainland. Now, you know, we do need to keep in mind, folks, that, um, that um, you know, when we see ships coming in big and small, you know, in modern day times, you know, there are docks. And sometimes ships have their own, or, or boats, have their own little um, spot to uh, dock in. But I will tell you this, in, in colonial days, the means of uh, getting ships in and out was completely opposite of what we might know in today's time. Uh, it might just depend on where, where you're at. In other words, not every, um, not every uh, port village might have had a standard uh, marina like we think of in today's time where boats big and small come come and go at their own leisurely expense so the big feature that would have stood out as ships transporting the 29th and the 14th regiments into boston harbor was none other than the long wharf and a wharf really is a sense when you think of wharf think of like a structure a building structure, and we're not talking like buildings like skys skyscrapers. We're talking about structures that are designed to, for um, for uh, boat-related purposes, obviously, where, in this sense, uh, for commercial purposes, where uh, goods are coming in and out of a bigger uh, harbor, or a bigger port, I should say. Now, what um, Matthew Chambers would have seen along with everyone else of the 29th Regiment, including Lieutenant Colonel Dalrymple's 14th Regiment, was that this long wharf, this it, it was truly was a superstructure, folks, 1,586 feet of wooden planks and stone pilings extending out to the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, and marked on both sides with warehouse facilities as well as taverns. Nearly 50 ships, folks, were capable of docking along the wharf. This meant, folks, that goods were brought in from all over the world to Boston shops and other facilities. I mean, think about it, folks. For all, for all we know, the, city of, the town of Boston, uh, ships coming into the town of Boston could be bringing goods in from the Caribbean, like sugar. They could be bringing in spices from as far away as uh, India. And one reason why I might know this is because when my wife and I went to Philadelphia nearly two summers ago, we learned that um, that uh, vessels were coming into the port of Philadelphia twice a week from, from as far away as India, where they were bringing in um, unique spices that uh, perhaps only a select few could get their hands on, perhaps being the landed gentry or the... Uh, or the wealthiest 2% of, uh, say, of uh, Philadelphia society. And the same might be said even for Boston's. But, but yes, the nearly 50 ships capable of docking along the wharf, goods being brought in from all over the world to Boston's uh, shops and other facilities. Now, as for the British ships, folks, do you think that they docked in a traditional manner once they got into Boston's uh, wharf? Long Wharf? No, it turns out they didn't. It just so happens that um, that the British ships, a dozen or more of them, 
they docked in a semi-circle position around Boston's Long Wharf. This was done, folks, as a means of displaying who was truly in charge. If we docked in a, if they docked in a traditional manner, they probably knew they ran the risk of um, locals um, engaging in acts of vandalism towards the ships. In other words, trying to um, trying to uh, what do you call it? Destroy property. Uh, being that of uh, British property, and also the fear of perhaps um, holding uh, British crew or British troops hostage, let alone. So they want to keep their uh, properties as far away from the hands of the locals, or in this case of the rabble-rousers. Now, it is going to take uh, multiple days, folks, in getting all the soldiers off the ships. So if, if the British ships, folks, formed in a semicircle, and that is they uh, docked, they, they dropped anchor, but doing so in a semi-circular position, how are they going to get to the mainland? Well, it just so happens that soldiers got off in small groups where they got rowed onto small boats, which led them to the Long Wharf. Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple eventually ordered two top companies from both the 29th and the 14th Regiments to march down King Street, Boston's most well-known road, where they would parade through the street, displaying their muskets with bayonets already fixed in place. I tell you, it's one thing to march down the streets, but you have your muskets and your bayonets fixed. That ought to tell us something right there, that we're here to show you all who, in fact, is the mightiest empire in the world, and that if you challenge our authority, if you harass us as soldiers, we have the right to stand, perhaps stand our ground. We also might have the right to uh, inflict harm on you. So bayonets, folks, you know, they're about 18 inches long. I, I don't think I would want to even... I've seen bayonets up close uh, watching... Um, soldiers uh, performing reenactments at Colonial Williamsburg by the magazine, a.k.a. Gunpowder House, I've watched them fix their bayonets. And that ought to be enough to tell you right there that, look, when you fix your bayonet, it's not only is it a means of intimidation, but it's also a sign of um, being able to uh, wear down an opponent as a final means of uh, conquering them. So perhaps the soldiers displaying their not only just their muskets but with bayonets already fixed in place, it should also mean that, hey, we're in charge here. We're not only the mightiest empire in the world, but if we're displaying our might, then you ought to think twice before engaging in any other rebellious activity that could result in your being executed. So the 14th Regiment led this parade, and the 29th eventually met up. There were 200 um, total number of troops who marched together into Boston's town center. Despite the parade showing, the housing problem still remained an issue. And get, and get this, folks. 20, the 29th Regiment went about placing their tents around the confines of Boston Common, where cattle often grazed. So in other words, they're sharing... 
they're sharing temporary quarters out in the open, knowing that cattle are going to frequently come about and graze. Th think about it, folks. There's no um, Holiday Inn hotels. There's no um, Doubletree by Hilton, no Hampton Inn Express. This is a dilemma, folks. This isn't going away. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about the uh, um, the living arrangement situation. But the 14th Regiment found shelter at Fanul Hall, named after Peter Fanul, who was one of Boston's wealthiest merchants. Now, um, besides the 29th and the 14th Regiment, another group of soldiers from the 59th Regiment came along and they were able to seek shelter in an empty warehouse. Four small transport ships remained in the Atlantic's waters, with luggage, women, and children still waiting to exit off the ships. Part of the problem, or part of the uh, dilemma, might be resolved, but it's only temporarily resolved. We still have to find housing for even for women and children. And... You know, this is a situation that uh, I don't think the British uh, Army ever anticipated. But it's going to get more and more challenging as time goes along. But we might also be surprised to learn that they that not all um, relations amongst the locals and the British families were necessarily bad. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about the uh, housing arrangement situations, and we're also going to talk uh, more about uh, families uh, blending in with one another. So we have a lot of more uh, important ground to cover, not only in the next uh, episode segment, for which I'll be on the air, but also for many other ones in this exciting uh, series. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all. And no matter where you all live in the world, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care.